Whether you have a general interest in health and wellness, or you are already a medical professional, we're here to provide you with tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. This is House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Here, our expert providers will provide you with wellness tips, information, and general health advice. Thank you for listening. Hey everyone, long time no chat. This is Brianna with our Health You podcast. I know my voice may sound a little unfamiliar to you all at this time. Given the COVID-19 pandemic and other circumstances, we've had to put our podcast on hold, but we are easing back into our show with our special episodes. Today, I am delighted to bring my special guest, Dr. Aram Jawed, to the show. Welcome, Dr. Jawed. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate being here, and um, I'd really like to share uh, some of the views and perspectives that we've developed during the pandemic. I'm totally looking forward to it. Now, just for our listeners, you know, their understanding, Dr. Jawed is a U.S. board-certified general surgeon with a specialization in bariatric and robotic surgery. And he actually came to me today with this idea for the show, and we just knew that we had to share it with our growing fan base. So today, we're talking obesity, but this isn't your normal, ordinary obesity lecture. Just like he mentioned, we're discussing how obesity can actually put you at an increased risk of suffering from COVID and other viruses and needing intensive care. But before we dive into all of that, Dr. Jawed, I know the word obesity is thrown around quite a lot. So can you kind of just break down and simplify what the term obesity is? Sure. So when we're defining obesity from a medical perspective, we're looking at the body mass index. Body mass index is a very quick calculation between a person's height and their weight. You can easily get an app for your iPhone or Android that will calculate the body mass index for you. But if you're looking at body mass index, when you're talking about obesity, it's a BMI or body mass index of 30 and above. When we're talking about bariatric surgery or the need or qualification for a weight loss procedure, then we're talking about a body mass index of 35 and above, which is clinically significant obesity, or 40 and above, which is morbid obesity. And that puts you at a very high risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, and a myriad of other health complications. So just this can't be confused and interchanged with the word overweight, correct? No. Overweight is a BMI below 30, and 30 is the cutoff for the word obesity. Got it. Okay. So now I was actually doing my research because, of course, I'm not the expert here, and I read an article published by the American Medical Association in 2018 that nearly 40% of Americans, adult Americans, are actually considered obese. And this was an increase from about two years prior, where it was around 34% and 35%. So what do you think is kind of causing this increase, and what are some of the risk factors? So that's a really loaded question. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> but there are a lot of factors at play to what causes obesity in the United States and specifically in our country. Now, if we talk about COVID again, the um, leaders of other countries such as Italy and Iran and places where the virus was reaching their peak way before it hit the United States, they were very concerned for first world countries like the United Kingdom and the United States because they were seeing a trend of obese people just needing ventilators and passing away from this virus versus the general population. And in the United States, 
it may be different than any other country, but you have to look at um, our way of life. You have to look at um, the food that we're eating. You have to look at the genetic factors at play as well. Um, some people look at socioeconomic status. So it's an interplay with many different factors. Um, and it also has to do with, um, with the, the biology as well. I mean, you know, in my personal perspective, and this isn't medical, this is my personal perspective, I believe that our bodies are outdated for the society that we're living in at this time. So what it, do you mean by that? Well, if you think, and I'm writing a book about this. Oh. Yeah. Self-plug. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but if, you know, if you think about this, right, you, and, and another thing that you didn't mention is that I did study biological anthropology okay. in college, which is a study of evolution and the study of man. And it really comes full circle for me because humans have been on the earth for ten, tens of thousands of years. That is a fact. And... The problem is that for the most of that time, we were outside, we were doing a lot of physical activity, we were burning a lot of calories, but we were also eating very low-calorie foods, right? Green leafy vegetables, nuts, fruits, hunting, gathering, foraging, farming, right? So in order to work for your food physically and you're burning so many calories a day, we needed to develop a very robust digestive system with a very large stomach. Because if you're eating low-calorie food, you need a large stomach in order for you to digest and absorb all the calories you can from a low-calorie food. So for thousands and thousands of years, that's what was happening, right? And then we develop these defense mechanisms against starvation because humankind only ever starved to death, right? Plagues, famines, droughts, okay? But there was never this overconsumption up until recently. So our bodies have this defenses against starvation by lowering our metabolism. It allows us to survive, okay? Which makes sense. Now, Go back 50 or 100 years, explosion in technology, cars, computers, um, movie theaters, um, you know, office desks, right, couches. So, and now you have iPads and iPhones and everything else. So everybody is sitting on technology and doing work on technology and stressed out on technology. Yeah. And it's a double-edged sword because one side of that sword is the fact that we are not doing as much physical activity as we used to, and we're much more sedentary than we ever were before. And the other edge of the sword is the fact that we have manufactured food to pack tons of calories into a small amount of food. Yes. So we went from a society for thousands of years of evolution doing a lot of physical activity and eating low-calorie food. Now we do no physical activity and eat high-calorie food. The complete opposite. The problem is that dieting and exercise, right, is a major issue for a lot of people who see me later on when they can't lose weight after years and years and years. And the problem is people don't realize that diet and exercise is 99% ineffective for long-term weight loss. That was a study published by the NIH back in 2015. It hmm. made no waves whatsoever because nobody wants to hear that fad diets don't work because it's a billion dollar industry. Yes. So, so think about it, right? The modern day famine is dieting. When you go on a diet, right? 
what'll happen is say this is your metabolism and this is your weight, yes. right? Brianna goes on keto, okay? okay? She loses 50 pounds. She feels great about herself, right? This only happened in four or five months, okay? Well, what happens to Brianna's body is the fact that your body is thinking, oh, there must be a drought, a famine, something's going on where she's not getting enough calories as she used to. Your body loves homeostasis. It loves to be at that one weight, right? Okay. So what does it do? It drops your metabolism down to get you back to that weight. This oh. is happening on the back burner and you have no idea. You lose 50 pounds. You feel great about yourself. You cannot live on this diet for the rest of your life. No. So then you say to yourself, I'm going to be good. I'm going to go back to eating what I used to eat, but I'm going to be good. So slowly but surely, you start to gain weight in the long term back to where you were before, but your metabolism stays down low. So now you actually overshoot where you were before, right? Then what happens? Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Then all of a sudden, oh my God, keto didn't work for me last year. <laughs> let me try intermittent fasting. Let yeah. me try paleo. Let me try Atkins. Let me try Weight Watchers. Let me try Zone. Let me try South Beach. I can keep going on and on, <laughs> right? Because there are a million of them. Yeah. And if there was one surefire way, everybody would be on it. But the fact is, they're just fads that come and go. And because of this one issue is metabolism, Right. How do you get your metabolism up? It's very hard, especially for morbidly obese people to get their metabolism, because by the time you reach a certain BMI body mass index of 40 and above, you're riddled with health problems. But also, how do you become active? Your knees hurt, your ankles hurt. Yeah. Everything hurts. It's a vicious cycle that never ends. Right. Yeah. So um, so we are here to help because in my personal view, you're updating your body to the society that we live in. Why take a sleeve gastrectomy, for example, or any other bariatric surgery, right? We manipulate the digestive system to be smaller, to have less um, absorption, so that when you do eat a smaller amount of food, your body is tricked into thinking that you ate more calories than you actually need. So it doesn't lower your metabolism at all anymore. And wow. by doing that, what happens is you do eat, you go on a post-bariatric diet, but I hate the term diet because diet just means what you normally eat every day. So we call it a modified regular diet because we want everybody to get their protein in first before fats and sugars. And so when you do go on this post-bariatric diet, what happens is you lose a significant amount of weight because you don't have the hunger hormones telling your brain that you need to keep eating anymore. You don't have the stretch receptors in your stomach that tell you that you need to fill a capacity of 1.5 liters in one sitting because our stomach is the most distensible organ in the body. It has stretch receptors in it. We know this from biochemistry that if it's not stretched adequately with food, keeps telling our brain, eat, 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 eat. So when we do this procedure on people later on, they say a lot of patients will come to me, Dr. Jawad, it doesn't seem like you did surgery on my stomach at all. It seems like you did surgery on my brain. And they coined the term food lobotomy. Hmm. So that's just because we are severing the connections of the body to need such an enormous amount of calories. 
I feel like I just had a crash course in diet and weight loss in a matter of minutes. That Absolutely. Was, and that's actually funny that you mentioned the example of me of me and keto because I actually did try keto over this quarantine. I started incorporating carbs back and I actually ended up gaining more weight than I originally started with, which was Listen, a miserable thing to the, even the, admit. And but but you you know what? You're you're in the same boat as everybody else. Yeah. The New York Times, I think it was New York Times or New Yorker just published an article on the biggest loser. Hmm. Remember the biggest loser? Yeah, yeah. They, that show was terrible. They they gained all their weight back, yeah. if not more. Everybody on that show. Okay, so I can understand the the lifestyle where you're working at a desk or an office, but there's also the CDC reported that 17% of children between the ages of 2 and 19 are also obese. So what do you think accounts for that as well? It's the same exact scenario except with children. It's disheartening because a lot of the school systems are trying to push healthy eating and everything else, but they're not motivating the kids to move enough. Okay. Because when they come home, now... You know, it's a whole societal issue, right? Because both parents are working, working, working. Kids are at home. They're just watching TV, watching TV, eating snacks, watching TV, that kind of a thing. Listen, I don't feel like I'm really that old, but I I do start to feel old because if I go back to Wilton, Connecticut, where I grew up, and I go back on my street, there's nobody riding bikes anymore. Nobody are, no kids are in the woods, you know, catching frogs or doing whatever you know we used to do as kids being outside constantly i have to say though during this quarantine it was a complete shock because i've never seen so many families and kids outside riding their bikes playing baseball and it just actually brought me this overwhelming sense of joy because i said this is how i used to grow up and i don't feel that old either but nobody does that anymore nobody does that anymore and that's that's the problem i think So now let's kind of bring this back to the original topic. And I think that was a great baseline for our listeners to understand what obesity is, some of the risk factors. But you mentioned to me that obesity is the second largest risk factor for an adult requiring intensive care. Now, can you elaborate more on that and what exactly intensive care is for our listeners? Sure. So first of all, the first major risk factor, as we all know, is age. Mm -hmm. Because if you're... Different studies say different things, but about the age of 60 to 65 and above, that's the number one risk factor for doing poorly with COVID-19 or the corona, novel coronavirus. Um, and the second is obesity, which means that there have been studies that show that even if you're not obese and have lung and heart problems, you're still better off than having no problems and being obese. Wow. And getting the virus. Now, what intensive care means, you know, you've all heard the term ICU, which is intensive care unit. And people who need the ICU need constant monitoring with COVID-19. Why? Because their lungs are being attacked. Their kidneys are being attacked. Um, Different vessels in their body are being attacked to the point where they can become unstable at any time, which means they can actually go into cardiac arrest and die or go into respiratory arrest and need a ventilator, which is mechanical ventilation, which is where we put a tube into your trachea in order to breathe for you. And a lot of people and that needed mechanical ventilation with COVID-19 for a very prolonged period of time, two to three weeks or more. Wow. And again, so I was doing a lot of research prior to this, and I found a study in Medical News Today that highlighted, this is New York City, so our backyard, 
that over 4,000 patients with COVID-19 in New York City found that severe obesity was a major risk factor for hospitalization, second again to age. And then in Seattle, um, they studied these critically ill COVID-19 patients, and 85% of these patients with obesity, they required ventilation, which I thought was pretty fascinating. And 62% of the patients with obesity died of COVID-19 compared to 36% who weren't. So That's almost double. Yeah. Right. It, that's crazy. So I was trying to kind of understand why. And, you know, I know you mentioned the lungs. And so I read the more overweight you are, the more fat you're carrying around and the less fit you are to really lower your lung capacity. And this means that you struggle more to get oxygen into your blood and around the body. So would you agree with that kind of that breakdown for listeners? Yes, I would. And and it has it has to do with a lot of different reasons. Um, but one of the major reasons is that this virus specifically attacks the cells in your lungs mm-hmm. and obese people, even if they don't have sleep apnea, many of them do have obstructive sleep apnea where they can while sleeping, they cannot um, take in enough oxygen because the, um, the, the girth of the neck is just too big. And so it prevents adequate oxygenation. So they actually drop their oxygen levels. Now you can imagine that if you're fighting a virus that's already dropping your oxygen levels, and then you have that on top of it, that you are going to go into pulmonary arrest or you're not going to be able to breathe enough. And um, so that's one of the problems. The other issue is that if you are morbidly obese or obese in general, you have a constant inflammatory state in your body, which means that your body is at an increased level of inflammation just from being morbidly obese alone. So imagine if you're fighting your own body constantly at, at, a, at a baseline level. And then you're compromised by this virus. And then, yes, exactly. And then you get the virus. Then you cannot recruit the cells needed in order to fight the virus because you're already... It's like, it's like a country having a civil war with itself, and then another country comes in, <laughs> takes over. It starts attacking, yeah. It, that's exactly what it's like. But you also mentioned, too, that obesity... Um, it increases viral shedding, so you're more likely to transmit the virus. Can you kind of elaborate on what that is? I'm, I'm definitely intrigued sure. by that. A lot of these papers were done on influ- the influenza virus. Um, but the coronavirus and influenza virus, they act in the same way, just have different outcomes. Okay. Um, so every virus attacks your cells and then allows your cells to become virus manufacturing plants that make more virus within your body. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the inflammation, because of the inflammatory response that your body is already, has already created from morbid obesity and fighting itself with all these comorbid conditions of obesity, when you do get the virus, your body has to attack itself to kill the virus, okay? If that makes any sense. It does, yeah. Because the virus, again, invades your cells, turns your cells into virus-creating factories and then attacks those factories and kills them, right? So if you already have an increased level of inflammation in your body, you will not be able to attack your own cells that are infected with the virus and kill them. That means that there will be more viral load in a morbidly obese person. And so thereby, if they are coughing or sneezing, etc., they will be shedding more virus into the environment than somebody who has a higher 
immune system that that kills off a lot of these virus manufacturing cells in their own bodies. Does that make sense? It does. And now you also mentioned something about mutation. You're more likely to have the virus mutate. And the same the same reason. So studies have shown even with influenza that there is a higher rate of mutation that happens in morbidly obese people that happens in people who are not morbidly obese, again, because their immune systems are better. So imagine, if it's taking you longer to kill the virus, that's more time for the virus to mutate in your body, right? So there's a higher rate of mutation in morbidly obese people versus people that have who are not morbidly obese that have a better immune system to kill the virus off in time, it doesn't give it a chance to mutate. People now listening may think, okay, well, I'll just go get a vaccine if one was to come out, or even for the flu, let's say. But isn't it true that if you're obese, the likelihood of a vaccine working actually decreases? Yep. And why is that? I mean, the same reasons, kind of? It's the same reasons. And studies have shown, again, with influenza, that if you are morbidly obese, that a vaccination is ineffective. Um, for over 50% of people who are vaccinated who are morbidly obese because of the same reasons, right? A vaccine is a dead virus that you're giving to yourself. Mm -hmm. So your body can create that inflammation and those cells and remember with memory. So the next time you get infected with that, your body's already primed to kill that virus. Now, again, going back to the inflammation, if you have an inflammatory state already, you're battling all these other health problems, if, you, if you're given a dead virus, you're going to have a very little, small, kind of infantile immune response to that virus. And then if you're hit with the real COVID-19, it's not going to work or be as effective. Now, I'm painting a scenario in my head where, okay, so I'm morbidly obese and I'm hospitalized with COVID-19. I can imagine that my hospitalization might actually be a little bit more difficult. So, for instance, I know that proning is a huge help for those who are on and off ventilators. So, for those who don't know, I know you definitely know what this is. but So, proning is kind of the artful orchestration of turning a patient to help improve oxygenation. I can't even speak. But I can imagine if you're obese, it's more difficult and it would take more people to probably prone you, right? Absolutely. And not only that, but you have to be in a specialized bed Mm -hmm. in order for you not to get bed sores and ulcerations because of the sheer amount of weight that is put on certain pressure areas on your body. It makes it a lot harder for the nurses and medical staff caring for morbidly obese patients, and I know this as a bariatric physician, that um, they're more prone to ulcers, they're more prone to um, to uh, oxygenation requirements. And what you're talking about, it's actually, we call it medical terminology, recruitment. So when you prone somebody from their back onto their stomach, it recruits a lot more lung tissue in order to oxygenate better. So that is kind of the science behind it. And then you you flip them back onto their, in a it's called the supine position on their back. And then because of gravity, it recruits different uh, lung tissue uh, where the other lung tissue may be underwater or under fluid because of the inflammation in the lungs. But yes, but with morbidly obese patients, very hard to turn, very hard to prone, and and, uh, major issues with pressure, ulcers, and sores. Definitely makes sense. And 
Obesity is also linked to 60 chronic diseases. You have stroke, cancer, type 2 diabetes. So could these other conditions, if somebody is obese and has, has also these conditions, could that also make you more susceptible to you know, being attacked by COVID-19? Yes. And the reason is, again, because you have a higher inflammation in your body, which lowers your immunity. And there have been many studies that show that significant weight loss increases your immunity uh, to the point where, you know, you will be able to fight the virus, whereas just losing five or six pounds is not going to do it. So the studies have shown that you need to lose, you know, at least about 25 to 30 percent of your excess weight if you're morbidly obese for a prolonged period of time in order for all of that inflammation we're talking about in your body to decrease substantially to the point where your immunity is now um, much more effective against the virus. Okay, you're obese and you're thinking, all right, it's time, I really need to lose weight. You already mentioned that at this point, diet and exercise are not really that effective. So what are you really left with? Surgery, medication, a little bit of both? Yes, I mean, your options if you're, if you're morbidly obese and and again, it varies from person to person. So I'm not saying every single person needs yeah, it's definitely not a cookie surgery. Cutter. But what I'm saying is that if you are a BMI, first of all, you got to calculate your BMI and see where you fall on the, on the spectrum. Then you have to look at your comorbid conditions, which means do I have diabetes? Do I have high blood pressure? Do I have sleep apnea? Do I have all these other things that, you know, you were mentioning the 60 list of 60 things. And then you have to look at um, your history, your personal history. How long have I tried? Can I move? You know, am I immobile? And then you come to the conclusion that, well, surgery may be a very good option for me since at this time in the 21st century, it's minimally invasive. It's safer than any general surgery. It has a safer risk profile. Any kind of complications are less than 1%. Everybody goes home in one day. Most people are back to work in one to two weeks. Um, and you lose a significant amount of weight in six months to a year. Well, that sounds enticing enough. What are the different types of surgeries? I'm sure there's a list that you could rattle off. But I mean, let's say, what are the top five or top three most popular surgeries you could do? So the top three most popular surgeries in the United States at this time are in popularity. Number one is the vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And that's what I was alluding to before. Where you shrink the the stomach? Yeah, where the stomach is, you know, can hold about one and a half liters of food in one sitting, has stretch receptors in it, has... Um, hunger hormones in it and it's called a metabolic procedure because it drops those hormones it gets rid of the the need to eat not just the restrictive portion of it but it's a metabolic portion of it so that's called the vertical sleeve gastrectomy we take out a sleeve of that excess stomach that you have um, that stretches like a balloon and accommodates that much food so that's that's number one uh, number two is the laparoscopic Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, okay? It's similar to the sleeve in where it's restrictive because we are fashioning a small pouch out of that stomach. But in addition, what we're doing is we're rerouting the intestines um, a little bit to make sure that when food, when you eat food, it actually bypasses a lot of the intestine that absorbs sugar and fats. And then it gets rerouted to the distal part of the intestine where it's not absorbed as much 
the, the fats and the calories. Right now I'm picturing my high school textbook, the inside diagram of what a stomach looks like so I could visualize exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yes. It's like a Y shape. Yes. You leave the stomach and you leave part of the intestine there. You have a new stomach, a new small stomach connected to intestine. It comes down, gets plugged in later, and then, and then everything else is normal after that. That procedure really is perfect for severe diabetes, uncontrolled diabetes. It has been shown time and time again to be to supersede any med- medication. And the third is a lap band. Okay, so that's yes. just shrinking it or so cutting that, it off a little bit? That is actually a silastic band um, that goes around your stomach and a little port goes underneath your skin. We can inject the port. The port insufflates the band around your stomach and you feel full. With COVID-19 still being around, and it will be around, I'm sure, until there's some kind of vaccine. I'm not really sure. I'm not the expert again. But is it safe right now to go get bariatric surgery, in your opinion? Yes. At this time, it is. We started doing um, elective bariatric surgery in in the middle of May. And since then, the at least in the state of New Jersey... The COVID numbers have decreased substantially to the point where today I got emails from two out of the three hospitals I work at that said we have zero COVID patients. That's incredible. In the ER, in the hospital, in the ICU, anywhere. Given they were slammed just weeks ago. Yeah. So we have to keep it that way. And this is a window of opportunity for patients who want this procedure done to get healthy by, God forbid, the next um, second wave or the fall or, you know, next winter. And what do you tell a patient if a patient calls, they're eligible, they're interested, but they may be a little hesitant to enter a hospital setting right now? What are you kind of telling them to ease their anxiety or their worries about any safety issues at all? I'm telling them at this point, everybody is tested. The patients are all tested. The doctors are all tested. I've been tested multiple times and everybody is socially distant in the hospital there are cleaning crews like I've never seen before. Um, the operating rooms where most of our patients come, preoperative area, postoperative area, they have ventilation turnover at a significant rate. So it is virtually impossible to get sick in that setting. I can't say 100% impossible, of but. Um, Knock on wood, we haven't had one patient that has been exposed to the virus. And we've been doing, you know, I would say around 15, 16 to 20 cases a week to get our backlog from the three months that we weren't doing any elective surgery in New Jersey. And um, most patients, you know, are, are okay with that. Well, that's definitely comforting. And, you know, it would ease any anxieties that I think I would have. So I I just want to say thank you, Dr. Jawed, for coming. This was an amazing crash course, again, in bariatric surgery, weight loss, dieting, which I hate that term as well. And I love the angle and how it pertains to COVID-19 and how it can increase your risk. So thank you for joining me and even pitching this topic. Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate it. Please look out for my book. It's going to be called Hacking Obesity. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. That's all for today. Until next Wednesday, thanks for listening. All participants on the Health You podcast have willingly and openly shared their stories. They have not been paid or incentivized for sharing. 
The views expressed by our guests solely belong to them and are not necessarily aligned with Hackensack Meridian Health.